and and, uh, and all that. Back to sort of the the sort of the the privacy you know sort of uh, topic and and scalability. You know, whenever it co- and I I hit on this earlier, how you can think about this liminal as a scalable privacy layer. What you have is two different pieces. This uh, ZK. down lower that down lower that down there we go no one wants to hear me too loud all right everyone good morning good afternoon good evening what is up i am your host charlie shrem yes i was singing to get all the levels making sure they're all worked out i should you know what i want to do i want to start writing Bitcoin, crypto, decentralization, like music. And on every episode, have at least like one song, maybe like once a month, have a new song that we could write. Like, I feel like old radio shows used to do that. That's how kind of music came to be. You can just say whatever you want, whenever you want. By oh, yeah, yeah. I, no, no, I didn't. I, I, <laughs> I do, you, do you remember um, there, there, was a, uh, there was a podcast or a, a radio show back, I mean, the early, like early, quote unquote, early days. I don't know how early it would have been. It was out of LA and they did, um, what was, I think it was Lutz's channel and yeah. he did a bunch of, um, you know, sort of uh, parodies of songs that were crypto based. So you took like pop, pop songs and, and then they, Oh, that's know, a great idea. That's what I should do. Something like that. Like there's, a uh, some really good shows on the radio that I want to like emulate, like, um, wait, wait, don't tell me. And, um, there was this like, watch what happens live or live from here. I forget there was like kind of Saturday night, Saturday night live variety show style shows, but that were very well written. They're still around, but they're an hour long and they're radio only. There's like no video component to it. And when you have an audio only show, like I've been trying to really focus on the audio. It, it's a different type of show. Like for example, when you're not recording video, I notice that people take a little bit longer to answer a question. They don't feel like they have to answer a question immediately on a podcast. It's very interesting. What are some of those other NPR shows that they do? I'm trying to think of them. I, I mean, I would listen to them oh, I mean, on, the, on the road. I mean, there's some really good ones as far as the, as far as the, uh, the one that's out of um, uh, Wisconsin that I really like. I'm trying to remember that. Oh, I know exactly I, what you're talking about. And I forget. It's, it's on the tip of my tongue. I can't, I can't remember it. Um, Hang on, we can. No, I'm gonna, now I'm gonna Google it, right? No, it no, 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 no. It's it's a it's on. I mean, now, now I want to look it up and. Yeah, I, look I it up because we can like. Hold, hold on. I'm gonna be editing this show. We're gonna be throwing things around, anyways. Wisconsin. While you look that up, and this is why I need to have Raphael, my potential co-host here, because he'd be looking this up and chiming in, kind of like Joe Rogan style. But Matt, let me introduce mm-hmm. you really quick. Sure. Matt Niemerg, you're the co-founder of, of Aleph Zero. You earned a PhD in mathematics, so you're perfect for the show because we talk a lot about mathematics and the involvement of socioeconomics, but people, people and math and how that will translate into how we do things in the future. You're a distributed ledger technology researcher. You're involved in various teams on multiple projects. Besides for Aleph Zero, you lead the team at Cardinal Cryptography. You advise One Ledger, Helix Cognitive Computing, Cardia Chain, and, and so many other ones. You completed your PhD in mathematics at Colorado State University. You were an IBM postdoctoral fellow. So it's safe to say that you understand the mathematics side to cryptography. It's an understatement. I, yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd hope so. I mean, the cryptography side is, is obviously still different than uh, even just the distributed consensus side of things. So, and there's a lot of overlap, obviously. 
but it, you know, it really just comes down to how you approach the problems and, and, and sure. such. So, but, uh, uh, but yeah, like, I mean, it, it, even, even with some of those, those, some of those projects, those are, those are the ones that I did, you know, like several years back. And obviously sure. I still have contacts with the, with the various teams and such, but it's, uh, things have, things have moved on and, and it was one thing to sort of start off in doing more advisory consulting work and, and sort of helping people versus going out and, and starting your own, your, your own project with obviously with my co-founders as well. It's just a completely different rodeo, right? I mean, it's oh, different yeah. game, different, you know, different work is involved. It's um, a lot more hands-on, a lot more intense, but you, you learn from what you saw from not just being involved in as a, in more of an advisory role, but also from, you know, an investor and sort of a, from the public sort of uh, knowledge that you were able to see and, and kind of take all of that and kind of figure out, well, what's the, a better approach? How can I, how, how, not how can I, but how can we work on this, you know, in a, in a way that's, that's a little bit more sensible, doesn't necessarily drive the hype, is more based on foundational principles and, and build everything out from there. Before we kind of get into into everything here and talk about Olive Zero and and just like consensus algorithms in general and kind of bringing on some of the topics from the previous episodes about like using hard money decentralization to build out like enterprise ready high performance networks. And it's funny because on one of the past episodes, our guest was talking about how after the dot com burst everyone thought the internet was going to go enterprise only. And what that meant was like B to C, like regular customers, regular people like you and I and how we use the internet now. Most people thought back then during the, the, inter- the dot-com bursting that the internet would just be regulated to these like industry only and just regular people like you and I will never touch the internet. A lot of people think that that's where blockchain and crypto is going now, that Regular people, it'll be like niche, but most of the way the blockchain is going is going to be like these large industry players. Do you, what do you have to say about that? Do you think the same thing? Did you figure out the Wisconsin thing, by the way? A Prairie Home Companion. Oh, I love that show. Yes. A Prairie I know, Home right? It's, 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 it's really, they're a phenomenal job. They do such a great job and they have so many different skits and, and, and yeah. you know, obviously it's a similar, similar skits they do every, every week, but it is always unique and, and they do a great job on the audio, right? I mean, that's, I think the, I think a great example. The other, the other good audio one I remember is, um, you remember listening to, or did you ever listen to the Hitchhiker's Guide version for the the radio for that? I don't think I did, but Prairie Home Companion, I was a huge fan of. And then actually they let go. There was, there was a host, but then they fired him and then the new guy's okay, but I wanted to see it live and they don't do live shows anymore. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I knew they did it live, but I, I mean, it's one of those things where it's, it's you know I, I just remember all the all the different sound clips that they would do for for all that and that was that was really I'm, interesting. I'm excited for this show starting January 1st. We have oh I don't want to get everyone too excited, but we're going to be bringing on director producer. We're partnering with this amazing company to be putting out like very specific episodic series that are like self-contained when you want to learn about a different subject from maybe five or ten different speakers. I'm like toying with the idea of actually doing like a fictional audio series, more of like just fun entertainment, comedy, horror type of thing, but like playing on maybe like the meta virus or something like that. We have some really cool stuff that we're coming out of the new year. So I'm very excited. The the meta virus, that sounds fun. Yeah. Well, the meta virus idea is, and, and I mean, if the listeners, like if you, if you guys like these ideas, like let me know, leave the reviews and subscribe, please. 
when we're running this, like the show, no ads throughout like the holiday season, hopefully for longer, if we continue just getting reviews and people hitting the subscription button, we can support ourselves without the need of, of sponsors. So, or just be able to have like more longer term sponsors that we can really talk about like what they're doing. So those really help. But yeah, there's some really cool things that we're doing. We've been podcasting together for, for four years, the listeners and I, and I'm excited to bring them something fresh. But back to my question, do you, do you want me to repeat it? You got it? No, no, I, I've got it. I've got it. So I think um, anybody who says that the blockchain or, or distributed ledgers is going to just not necessarily have anybody in retail involved is just wrong. That's just, I mean, you know, it, it's the same I guess, I guess if you think of it from the perspective of what people were claiming in the dot-com era and they're like, well, retail isn't going to be interested. General consumers aren't going to be using this technology. I think they were, obviously that turned out to be to be incorrect. And I think that's still going to be the case with the, whenever it comes to blockchain. Whenever it comes to this space and what we're building out, obviously there's going to be an enterprise component. But what makes it interesting is it can be really fun and it can be really entertaining. So I think that we're going to see a lot more in the direction of gaming um you know especially in the sort of the the metaverse side of things and or even just sort of digital collectibles and, and sort of gaming from that perspective and you know even back in the day i would say back in the day i don't even know yeah. what i mean by back in the day but but uh you know whenever i first entered the space it was you know you just you just had fun mining a new coin and, and sort of joining the community and it was all voluntary you know these sort of um Voluntary economic experiments, yeah. right? So you you knew what the the emissions rate were. You knew kind of what the developers were sort of going for as far as what their project was, and you could either you know decide to join or not decide to join. And uh, it was just fun. It was just fun to do. And I, I I think that that's a part of the component that we have nowadays after several cycles that um, that we're missing. I think that's that's like there's this gap now, and that's that's kind of where we're at. We we thought we knew what crypto was going to be mainstreaming with. We thought it was going to be maybe ICO tokens. We thought it was going to be, maybe it was Bitcoin that was going to take over the world, or maybe it was going to be security tokens or maybe DeFi. And I'm not going to say that whatever the future is may not encompass all of these different particular social experiments that happened in crypto land over the last 10 years. But I think a lot of people just don't know. And frankly, like being on some of these investment committees that I'm on, there's a lot of hesitancy even continuously to invest in some of that at least like early stage infrastructure stuff because because some of like the dot com era folks who are on those committees with me, I was going to say older folks, but doesn't, you know, I'm getting old. <laughs> it doesn't matter now. <laughs> but uh, there's like a hesitancy because they've been through that. And I hate I hate using this comparison. Unfortunately, there's just not a lot like in the recent history to to compare kind of this stuff to. But there's definitely that. So what are you so what are you guys building out at at Olive Zero? Yeah, I think um the 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 main component or what you can think about is you, you think you hit the keyword earlier was is infrastructure, right? So this is such a nation technology, this is such a new industry, then what that means is that we need to focus on the the technology stack and the infrastructure. And what that means is either on the um just the basic core blockchain component, but doing so in a way that takes from you know academia and from the computer science world and math world, builds on top of the foundational proofs that we have and essentially the last three or four decades of distributed systems theory, instead of just doing a completely you know revamp you know, solution. Not to say that Bitcoin and, and sort of the Nakamoto consensus protocol isn't innovative. Like that's it is very innovative. 
but there are aspects of this uh i mean from a theoretical and sort of from a math perspective there are aspects that we sort of ignore for for a long you know for a long time and so i think it's more about kind of going back to the basics and going back to the these sort of guiding not even guiding principles but sort of more core foundational principles for building out infrastructure. So this means that you got to focus on security, you got to focus on things along this line. And so that's just doing proper software development, proper code reviews, auditing, open source, all that fun stuff, but still building from, you know, first principles of, of mathematics and computer science. So that's, that's the sort of the first, that's sort of the long answer. And then sort of the sort of a very brief answer as to the things that we're focusing on is uh, primarily the core consensus, which is what we've been able to innovate on with the Aleph BFT. And then also we're working on a combined ZK SNARKs, uh, ZK proofs and multi-party computation uh, package. So this is, we're calling this liminal. And so then the idea here with this is that we want to be able to provide bridging technologies to other people who are other developers who have actually launched on other chains like Ethereum or on Arbitrum or on Cosmos or what have you. But by using this bridging technology, go ahead and identify the components of their smart contracts that are actually need to be private and then have that privacy sort of solutions be run on the Aleph network um, and then bridge back the data solutions or the, the computations that have been performed you know, if you're going to do, say, private computations with with MPC, uh, or if you want to do a zero knowledge proof and get the result back and and have it, you know, sort of be embedded on chain. So, so the idea here is that with very minimal surgery, people who are already have a smart contract that's been developed on on any of these other layer ones, they can go ahead and identify the core pieces that they need for the privacy, you know, stack for their particular protocol, and then go ahead and use our solution and connect. Why couldn't they put the privacy, why couldn't they do it on their own chain? Potentially they can. So what you have is, is sort of two two things to think about. One is the smart contracts themselves have a um, are sort of limited in the amount of computation that you can do. So you have like your gas limits, you have your you know, sort of a, a, a topping point as far as the, the number of computations that you can perform. And for the most part, almost everything is is as far as the zero knowledge proofs and using multi-party computation, most of that stuff is already being sort of offloaded and, and pushed off chain anyway. And then you're getting some type of mathematical proof that says that you have a valid computation and it was all secure. And then you want to go ahead and embed that back on the main chain. So it doesn't really matter where that computation is occurring if it's already off chain. The idea is then to use the, you know, the essentially the library stack that we're building for this this privacy solution. I'm use the the Aleph network to sort of identify the the parties that are going to be doing the computations that are going to be doing, you know, these secure computations using using our solution. So it's it's really it's really you're you're also going to be able to have a little bit more of a you know, it's going to be a little bit more scalable um, and and faster by using the the native solution on the Aleph network more directly. But that doesn't mean that we don't want to you know sort of cut off people who are already have their solutions deployed on other other chains. That's a lot of bit more scalable. It's not just a little bit. This is this is a scaling a a real sounds like it's a real scaling solution for almost all like proof of stake EVM chains, right? 
one thing you got to think about is that broadly speaking in the privacy world you have sort of two two components that you can do one is using hardware based solutions using trusted execution environments and we've seen some some stuff um in the news cycle in the last couple of weeks with uh Intel's SGX and the disclosures that went on with um with uh, some of these privacy uh, projects that are been using the their hardware solution and there was a some responsible disclosures that occurred and that was wonderful that they went ahead and and you know did this sort of security analysis and did the proper way of disclosing everything hardware solutions tend to be you have one problem is that you end up with potential hard you know sort of vendor lock in so you don't have any control over the whether or not you know whose hardware solution you can yeah. use so you only can use intel for instance it's not very decentralized you, you know in in a lot of sense so it's not necessarily um, you know, in the same alignment of the direction of decentralization that we're trying to achieve in this space. But what that does allow you to do, the, the advantage of hardware is that it's much more, it's much faster, right? But it comes at that cost of lack of decentralization. Yep. So what we're focusing on is actually a pure software solution using multi-party computation combined with zero knowledge proofs. Now, multi-party computation is actually really slow. It's even slower than zero knowledge proofs. Now, people want to say that zero-knowledge proofs are not very fast, and relatively speaking to normal, regular transactions, they're not necessarily fast. But compared to MBC, they're light, you know, they're lightning fast. I mean, it's like a, a thousand x difference or something along that, that you know, order of magnitude as to how MPC quickly you can verify these. MPC is how it's being done right now. So MPC it stands for multi-party computation. The way that you can think about MPC and the, and what it can do versus what zero-knowledge proofs can do is that zero knowledge proofs is more about local data and having privacy locally where you don't have any interaction with other parties, whereas multi-party computation requires more global data that you want to have some privacy component to. So whether or not you want to go ahead and do private addition and private multiplication, which actually allows for you to go ahead and, and more or less build out any, what you would call any algebraic circuit or, or um, a computer yeah. circuit. So I'll, 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 computation, you know, at the end of the day, whenever we're, we're, we, you go down to the hardware level, everything can be built out from um, addition and multiplication gates. So if you can have private addition and private multiplication, then you have arbitrary private computation. The problem is that once you do private computation in this manner, it goes, you're sort of offloading it fully to software, and you're not able to use the native hardware to go ahead and, and obtain the, the level of speeds that we're normally used yeah. to. And randomness, right? Well, randomness is a component. You need you need randomness for almost all these protocols. So randomness is pretty cool too, just as a as a broad thing. You know, even from chaos and yeah. The reason I bring up randomness here is that because you're talking about offloading what needs to be done on hardware now, and the reason that we have like, for example, a hardware wallet because there's like a chip in here that creates the private keys. And because the creation of private keys is essentially like you said, addition and multiplication. It's just a computation, a computational algorithms that you create a public address from a private key and no one can be able to reverse that. Mm -hmm. Is that something that could also be offloaded to like software in a very safe way? And then the randomness too, because still till today, there's no way really to do randomness on software only. Correct. Yeah. So almost all randomness is actually done where it's offloaded to to using physical hardware devices People to be able to grab. That. Yeah. No. It, it, you know, like you're you have on your your Mac or your Linux machine, and I don't know about the the you know sort of the Windows machines, but there's a a file called URandom. 
slash 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 dev slash you random. And that's actually taking bits from the the hardware and, and is generating random random data. So that's almost always where you're you're actually pulling the random data from um, whenever you're using these for these protocols. Yeah. Now now as far as your hardware wallets, that's it's subtly different, right? So normally with say a, a ledger or or some other you know hardware wallet, it doesn't really matter. You have your BIP38 standard, right? So this is the Bitcoin improvement proposal, you know, proposal um, yep. from I don't I, I don't know what year they they, they did it eleven or something like that. All yeah, it's thirty eight like, and thirty nine. I mean, basically, basically been adopted by everybody, right? But what's happening here is that you have your 12, 18, 24 words, and there's sufficient entropy, meaning that there's sufficient randomness from choosing these words that. It's a deterministic protocol so that if you use the same words each time, then you're always going to get the same private key. But the idea is that the, you know, the private key that's being generated isn't coming from necessarily random, you know, hardware, at least in this case. Oh. Now, ideally, you're, you are using random hardware to generate, to randomly generate which words you want to use. But that's, you know, uh, you know, that's neither here nor there. I didn't realize randomness was such a huge problem because I was being shown a a company that was selling these devices that essentially was like the hardware equivalent of someone throwing dice and then the camera reading mm -hmm. the number on the dice and it was throwing like 18 dice a second or die a second. It was just this device that created randomness that would emulate what that dev random was doing. And I didn't realize that it was such a, it's such a fun, it's such a fun conversation topic that rabbit hole to go down because is there such thing as true randomness? Or is just randomness such a large chaotic pool that our brains and the computers that we have now don't have the don't have the ability to like predict it? You know, that's actually a really good question. Um, there's actually some really really deep math that goes behind the definitions of randomness and what we mean by this. So there were oh I, I think it were it was some problems that Steve Smale put together back in the for the 20th century. So in, in the in the math in the math world, what you have is these uh a lot of the prominent mathematicians or computer scientists, they put together sort of um unanswered questions. And I think one of the unanswered questions that he had was related to to randomness on I forget this particular problem, but the way that he phrased and worded the question the the end result some people solved the problem and it was you know you know the the community the academic community you know said yes this is a solution to this problem but it was due to the fact of how he had worded the particular uh, question and how how randomness was being used in their in this definition so based off of the definition it you know there was actually some some crazy end result on on what the um on what the answer to that problem was and i i think it had to do with how uh, how quickly you could solve a polynomial equation using you know a random polynomial equation, but then a lot of it has to do with where you truncate the bits for these uh, for whenever you're generating the randomness, and is the truncation of the uh, of or sort of this random number is that truncation good enough? Where does that sort of like give you you know when you can actually go ahead and uh, you know, sort of chop off and, and say, okay, these these sort of 100 first bits are good enough. We don't need all 200 bits in order to achieve the level of randomness that we need. But it's, it's okay. It's sufficient to go ahead and, and, you know, sort of get rid of this last portion. Well, you just described difficulty, actually, right? 
Well, okay, so difficulty in, in hardware, what, what is this? This is doing SHA-256, right? Or SHA-256D, so you're doing the double SHA-256 hash. With, with Yeah, it's precisely this randomness problem is that you have a input with a, determin, a deterministic output. So you always have the same input. You're always guaranteed to have the same output. But because of hash functions, the idea is that they're one way and the space that they're mapping onto is sufficiently random, right? It's um, you don't know what the output is going to be given a particular input, but you're always going to calculate the same, in, you know, the same output every time. So the question then becomes, if I want to be able to say I need a leading, you know, I need uh, 50 leading zeros and I need to find a puzzle hash solution based off of these transactions and some number that's used only once. Well, I, I can I can broadly say that statistically I can go ahead and eventually find a solution and, and I can do so in this, the difficulty time factor that's that's required. But um, you don't know when you're going to do it, but it takes enough enough hashing to be able to eventually get there. And basically, the diff- so then bringing back to difficulty, because you know how long it's going to take to get there, once you know it's going to take a super long amount of time, then you essentially, it becomes like economically infeasible to even try. And there's like, password generator testers that you people can check this. They could type in a random password and they can see how long it would theoretically take to reverse hash that because mm-hmm. it's not like it's impossible. It's just that randomness, the way it is. So now and the, the way that we, we can essentially predict, we know how fast computers can compute and we know how fast our brains can compute. So because we know that side of the equation, we also know that if we could just make something so difficult to compute, then that's hardened enough. And that's where it kind of comes back. Is that what that is? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the idea is that we we have, it's all statistics at the end of the day, right? At least for for this example. So we we know how quickly we can compute things, you know, based off of hardware, as you say. And we know the the um how 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 many results will end up. And we we know sort of the the space that we're trying to map onto with say a 256-bit hash. So we can say that, you know, there's going to be whatever, the, there's a there's a doubling of difficulty to, from going from a, uh, a leading zero to two leading zeros. And then there's a, you know, a quadrupling of difficulty going from one leading zero to three leading zeros. And then it just sort of uh, is factors of two from there. But as you kind of go back to your password um, example. This is actually one of the reasons why I really just dislike these companies that require you to do, you know, only 26 characters and you need one uppercase and yeah. one, um, you know, one random, you know, sort of the, the special character. Defining just say the, that you, all, all you need is just say, look, 20 characters, just require 20 characters or 28 characters or whatever. And uh, don't put any other restrictions because as soon as they put restrictions, they're reducing the, um, the the space that you can do a brute force attack on. And I don't know if like you remember when you were younger, I don't know if you did it, but like there were those old software, the early days of software, they were like those password crackers that essentially you just upload readme files of just millions of words. And the software would just against a password would just sit there and try for hours. And that's why they had to invent CAPTCHAs. I, I never did that. Um, <laughs> I did that. I was talking about the early days of of the internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 I think I can be confident enough to say that I, I did all the, uh, you know, the Windows cracks and and things like that back days. in the day. But I miss but, those uh, days. That's, 
I mean, but you know, you get older and you 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 get yeah. to the point where you're like, okay, I can actually afford to pay for this, and that's actually not a good thing to to sort of take away from people who have their their IP rights and and so on. And you kind of grew up, but you know, whenever you're but whenever you're 14, you just don't really care, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's a funny story. Like when so we, my wife and I produce this film. We make like during bear markets, we just do non crypto stuff. Uh, we still do crypto stuff and Bitcoin stuff, but it's like you have to find other sources of income sometimes. So we we decided to to make this movie together. Ask me to dance. It's a romantic comedy. But the first thing I did when it was released was I went to Pirate Bay to see, like you know, your movie's good if people are torrenting it, right? And <laughs> there <laughs> there was about. 10 different listings for ask me to dance. And each one had a solid like 70 seaters and hundreds of leechers. And I'm like, wow, this movie's so popular that you got hundreds, if not thousands of people illegally downloading it right now. Like it was a big, like badge of pride for me. No, I mean, what you got to do is you got to double check and see if it's actually on IRC and some of the where's channels. Oh, the, that's that where, that's where, you know, you've really have made it. Do you remember when you could actually, I remember first file, the first, file share that I personally ever really got excited about was the ability with IRC. Like that was, you could do IRC and you'd click a button and it would just open up like all these random channels and servers that you'd no idea what they are, but all of a sudden like a download would start. And like three days later, your like 40 second clip would be finished. Oh yeah. I remember, I remember those days. <laughs> we keep going back to this word privacy. I feel like that term needs to change because a lot of people equate privacy with anonymity. And anonymity is what, where we don't want to go, but privacy is something completely different. Can you like reclaim that term? And what are like the types of privacy components or privacy related smart contracts that you think businesses, but also people want to be doing? I understand the, the, the concerns, right? So you have the sort of um, butting up against the, the regulators whenever it comes to anonymous transactions. And even just the the concept of privacy in sort of this uh, panopticon state surveillance system that we have is constantly being sort of pushed. To, you know that they you know this is not acceptable, right? You know because we have to be able to to catch sure. the criminals and stop the the terrorists and the you know the money laundering and all that. And that's that's well that's you know a laudable goal, and we should be you know trying to to not have that. There is always the possibility for selective disclosure. For any privacy framework, so whether or not it's Monero or it's a Zero Cash or it's a Tornado Cash or Zero Coin or whatever, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, you have the ability of disclosing the origins of any transaction, at least for financial privacy. For you know, at least for that. So, ignoring the financial privacy side, the the same types of um, disclosure can exist for for private computations or for zero knowledge proofs or, or what have you. So the idea here is. What are businesses and enterprises looking for? I think it's uh, privacy on data. So you can do things like take take IPFS for instance. So this allows for um, they they what IPFS uses is a is a technology called erasure codes, or they can use erasure codes. And this is essentially what is being done whenever you have um, you're in a data center and you're using RAID zero or RAID zero plus one. Or, or what have you, even in, on your own local um, computer setup. So RAID 0 and RAID 0 plus 1, they basically have like, say, you know, like six different, you know, hard drives, but then you're only getting the equivalent of four of the hard drives, um, you know, storage space out of them. But because you have redundancy built in, like say a couple of the hard drives can fail and you can still reconstruct all of your data. So this is a, 
a primitive, a, a mathematical primitive that allows you to, to do this type of reconstruction. Now, all this is local. So now take that concept and split it up in a way where you, instead of having each hard drive, you know, in the same data center, you have a, a, a hard drive in multiple yeah. data centers. Now, obviously, you don't have the same level of throughput and, and storage, uh, um, sort of how quickly you can reconstruct your data, but you have way more security in the sense that an attacker needs physical access to not, say, one data center. They need physical access to six data centers in order to basically reconstruct the data. And for all intents and purposes, getting access to any one hard drive or any one file chunk, right, that that is used to reconstruct this your original data, it looks random. Uh, back to randomness. So, so you just look at this this chunk of data. It just looks random. I don't know what this is. It doesn't, you know, tell me anything. But whenever you have enough of the chunks, you can go ahead and use the mathematical machinery to put them all together, and then eventually get your original data um, back out. So, so I think that doing something like this and using the blockchain as say a um, distributed hash table, where this hash table is saying this file is located on these six different servers and we only need four of these servers to go ahead and respond with their, their data chunks to be able to reconstruct the original file that gives people not just private you know not just the, uh, the corporations but that gives everybody a lot more privacy on just their file storage and their data storage. that's like a decentralized treasure map like it's like taking all yeah. of like if you take all of my storage and put it in little hard drive you know in millions of pieces in hard drives all over the world Essentially, you're talking about like a treasure map of knowing where the pieces are and how to put them back together, but no one else has that. Correct. So, I mean, the, the, that's so cool. Generally, you would say that the the blockchain is still going to have some amount of data that's available publicly to to so you know just because you know it's um it's one of those things where you need to be able to know where the files are located. So. Depending on the architecture, you could, like you say, you could have it where the uh, the IP addresses of servers are, are not known, yeah. right? But that's probably not the best solution. So you still probably need to have generally, you know, sort of knowledge as to where they are, just from an efficiency perspective. But as far as being able to unlock the file, all you need to be able to do is provide a signature of your private, you know, using your private key. And then you just communicate into the smart contract and then the smart contract sends out the request to all the different servers. And then you get the, the chunks sent to you. And then the chunks you can go ahead and reconstruct using some, some software that can uh, give you back your original file. This is really, really, really cool technology here. And I could totally see why you would need privacy. Like talk about just like the data of, of, like our, our medical data and just like national security and defense and things like that. There's a reason that we do need privacy in that. That's actually a really good way to get on the good side of governments too with this privacy technology. I agree. I, and I think that our, our approach is more not necessarily on financial private transactions, but really more on broadly privacy as a whole, because there are plenty of applications that, you know, that are really enterprises really going to want governments are going to want. And the idea is that it doesn't necessarily have to be solely about, oh, did I send money or did I not necessarily money, but did I send tokens from one account to another? And can I do so in a way that obfuscates the the originating address and even the recipient address? We don't have to worry about like that level of privacy. I mean, yes, we want that and, and we should have financial privacy and the people should have financial privacy. But um, if we instead try to capture 
you know, enterprise interests from, um, you know, about privacy as a whole, then we get other people who can help back us whenever we, we bring this to to Congress and we talk to, to lobbyists and, and so on and so forth, not just even in the States, but also in the EU, you, you see plenty of um, plenty of lip service, maybe not necessarily just yeah. lip service, but you see a, a lot of um, traction on on what is what does this mean to have privacy? So whether or not you have your your data privacy with GDPR or or anything else. So I think that there's an interest at the governmental levels. I think that they they tend to try to balance it with the public interest as well. Um, as far as trying to, you know, stop crime and, and so on and so forth, it's it's a tough problem. So I, I think from from our angle, it's more about, like you say, these medical, like a medical data example. That that's a great example of what we can do in order to provide a much more secure fashion to store your your own individual private data. But then you can do things like um, operations research, like uh, linear programming, machine learning can be done fully private. So there are ways of of actually doing all like when I when I told you earlier we can do private additions and and private multiplications. All of the machine learning is just linear algebra, yeah. And linear algebra is nothing more than additions and multiplications. So if we can actually construct everything from from a uh, computation wise from just these additions and multiplications, and we have private addition and we have private multiplication, that means that we can have private bootstrap data so like whenever you have your learning model for for machine learning you could have a, a so like a company could go ahead and and have data that they're using to train a a computational model um, but they don't necessarily have to reveal what that data is and they can have a guaranteed bootstrapped for that uh for, for that model that that is done in a fully private fashion in addition you can go the other direction you can also say that i have a public uh, a public bootstrap uh, model but I want to have the the actual end result to be fully private, and I and I want to know where this uh, you know if I have this training data that that's been public, and I but I want to go ahead and do private computations for the end result, and I don't want people to know what I've actually been computing or how I computed it, um, or even know what I inputted for that for that for that computation for the prediction or for the uh, for this for this machine learning model. Um, you can do it that that way that too. We had a episode actually recently with the CEO of Angel Block, and they were talking about you guys too, and that you're working together. Yes, uh, Alex is a, yes. is a good friend. What a great yeah. episode with Alex! It was so good. Learned a lot on that show, and he talked about what you guys were doing, and that was one of the reasons that we I wanted to get some more details and understand really like how this. I really understand like how this is now going to be the future of scaling because. You're, you're making blockchain creation and blockchain scaling like very modular and the ability to like build up almost like you're building a house. But what I wanted to have, ask- Have you seen some of those modular houses where they just yeah, like yeah. unfold? And I mean, some of that so stuff cool. is, is just crazy what we're able to do nowadays. It's really cool. I was someone, some guy was showing me these like these cities that he can build in days. And there was like a major catastrophe in the Philippines a couple of years ago. And he built like a refugee camp that had like the proper sanitation, the proper everything using these like modular homes that you can just like build anywhere and within like days. It's crazy stuff that we can do nowadays. It's amazing. It really it's amazing. is. Because unfortunately, the, the world is changing. And if we're going to continue to live on it, we're going to have extreme situations and we're going to need to be able to adapt it humanity wise. It's scary. Well, we have to change with it and, 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 uh, and all that. Back to sort of the, the sort of the, the privacy, you know, sort of uh, topic and, and scalability, you know, whenever it comes, and I, I hit on this earlier, how you can think about this liminal as a scalable privacy layer. What you have is 
two different pieces, this uh, ZK you know, proofs, as well as the multi-party computation. So what you want to do is you want to do as much as possible using zero-knowledge proofs, and then only whenever it's absolutely necessary to, to have sort of this global, um, some type of global data that you need private or some type of yeah. computation that a bunch of people are, are doing, do you offload that to MPC? And so what that really requires is a a complete rethinking of how you go ahead and do the algorithms for for these types of privacy solutions. So it, it just really requires some um, re-architecting and not necessarily domain knowledge or d- domain specific knowledge, but it, it's a different paradigm on on how to actually achieve this uh, the level of uh, privacy that or level of scalability that we want in privacy. Going back to like consensus and, and algorithms and stuff, and this was like one of the first things I wanted to ask you. We were talking about Wisconsin radio shows was uh, about so you had like the Satoshi White Paper, Nakamoto Consensus and Proof of Work. And essentially, it's like everything that we're talking about, computational, the ability to do like computational privacy, but randomness and decentralization and the ability to have this ledger system all over the world and potentially the future of, of data could be like IPFS. The future of data could be decentralizing of all this new inventions, but proof of work is great, but it's it's very hardware-based and you're using energy out there, which uh, I don't want to get into that conversation. It's good and bad because you can have true randomness and you have the ability for no one to actually control all the resources or you have true permissionless technology. But I, well, I guess what I'm getting at here is then you, you know, there's been proof of stake, tons of different type of consensus algorithms that like tweak things, change things. You have ones like yours that you guys created. It's called Directed Acrylic Graph-based consensus protocol that offers like instant finality, which is very unique. At this point, are people still trying to invent new type of consensus protocols? I, I think yes and no. You have, say, for instance, you look at what Aptos and Sui are doing. So these are these are people who came from the Facebook's DMs team, um, oh, yeah. and they have their own consensus protocol. I think it's based off of hot stuff. Um, but it, and I think they're calling it narwhal and and or, or some other things or bull shark or what have you. But the but the idea here is that there's there's a couple of different ways that we can think about consensus. One is in the completely permissionless setting with Nakamoto consensus, we have the longest chain rule. So the the idea here is that the canonical and the valid chain is the one that has the most work on it, and you can apply that to say the the proof of stake chains like. Um, uh, you know that that also did longest chain rule too. Yeah. Now, as as sort of and so that that was sort of the the originating idea whenever it came to to sort of um, Bitcoin and, and so on is that in order to achieve this permissionless property, we needed to have some anti-Sybil mechanism in place. So Sybil is your attacker who can just basically create as many identities as she wants, and doing so can control the network. So the way that you combat this is by introducing some type of uh, mitigation factor. And this was done with proof of work, which was essentially was actually done first for email, email spam. So proof of work was actually used as a as a way of, of stopping people from sending out a bunch of emails and spamming these uh, these network servers and so on. So that's where the original idea came from. But you can take a lot of these these ideas that we've used in the past and, and put them all together and, you know, and and then you get Bitcoin. Right. But the but the idea here is that this isn't fundamentally equivalent to traditional Byzantine fault tolerance systems and traditional databases and and things like this. So you have obviously we want 
decentralization and we want permissionless chains. We really don't like this whole concept of permission chains and control by consortiums yeah. and, and, and so on. So if this is a public utility and this is publicly owned, then that also means that the public should be able to participate, you know, in, in a, in a public fashion. So the only way that you can do this is using this permissionless property. Whether or not that's using proof of work as the anti-civil mechanism or proof of stake, where you're using stake as sort of the yeah. economic sort of um, barrier to entry, it, it really fundamentally doesn't matter. But what you're, but what like you you brought up, you want to use some mechanism that has enough randomness to say that you don't know who's going to be chosen to be a committee member, either a single committee member in the case of Bitcoin or a committee member of 15 or 100 nodes that are operating a classical BFT protocol. So what has happened is that we've seen, I think like probably the first major chain that did this would, I would say would be more like Cosmos, is that you start off with the, your proof of stake and you, you have random elections and then you're using, and this they, they use Tendermint for their consensus protocol, but for that short period of time, um, you have a fixed validator set, a fixed committee, and then you rotate them in and out, right? And I mean, this is more or less what everybody does nowadays. Of course, you can have things like finality gadgets with grandpa and what Polkadot does, or you can use the, the finality gadget that Ethereum is, is, promote, is proposing. Functionally, they, they operate very similar because they're, they're really deriving a lot of their principles from the classical BFT world. So we, we operate in the, in the same way in the sense that you have, a, um, you have a consensus protocol. It's fully permissioned in the traditional sense. But then what you do is you allow for rotating of the committee members in a permissionless fashion and then use that permissionless fashion using a proof of stake, at least in our case. Matt, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and coming on Untold Stories today. I counted like four, well, actually everything on this show was new to me and, and I learned a lot of different things. Lastly, I, I just wanted to, to touch on, we, we mentioned machine learning. A lot of people think like machine learning and some of these AI things are like uh, enterprise only. I'm seeing all over my social media now, these Dolly pictures that people just upload a few of these pictures and they've created like 50,000 random images. And then like chat GPT is all over where people are just asking the AI to write them poems about Sam Bankman Fried or their neighbor's dog or something like that. Is that kind of the same thing that we're getting at here? Is it all just math in the background? It's all math in the background. Like it really is. Like, I mean, of course there's obviously, like you say, it's a, it comes down to the people and, 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 and that, but fundamentally most things like machine learning, that's all, that's just all math. That's just a, a, uh, you're using just a large uh, training model to be able to, to achieve sort of these, these, you know, I, th I think phenomenal results. It's fascinating to see. And, and it really shows how it's not just necessarily a, a full enterprise application as well, just with AI. It's, it's, it allows for people to have fun. And this is sort of the, no. the thing I, I touched on earlier is that if it's not fun, nobody's going to be interested. In it. So if we can just make, make whatever it is that we're doing, you know, more interesting, more fun entertainment. I think entertainment is going to drive this industry, you know, by far, it doesn't necessarily have to be in, in sort of the, the metaverse or, or gaming, but even just having fun in, in, you know, participating in new communities and, and, and having, you know, enjoying yourself. I mean, if you're not having fun, you're not doing it right. That's like my whole point of the show, education and entertainment and to have fun. The only reason I got into the space was to have fun. And if we can't have fun doing this, then what's the point? And so like, it's funny because fun is what's bringing these technologies mainstream. Some of these technologies have been around for a while, but now that people can have fun with them, 
Same thing why tokens got exciting, because people can have fun with them. Yep, I 100% agree. Let's cheers to making sure that we keep this uh, we keep this fun. You know, high school math, right? Like high school math should be the conversations that we have now. Not like you show up to class and there's like this epic division problems and you got to sit for the first 30 minutes and just do like long division or whatever. This should be what high school math is. We should be teaching people how mathematics actually is 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 energy. It's all around us. It's physics. I mean, when you understand the concept that energy can never be destroyed, it could only be transferred, it can't be created or destroyed, only transferred, you start to think, and it's like, wait a minute, but where does energy go, and how does it move around? And then you get into the whole math pro- thing, and then every, it just, it's, and I was the worst math, I was the worst math student in high school, and like, look today, they should have, they should have really, everything should be different. But anyways, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No, I appreciate you having me, Charlie, it was really fun. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Thank you.